0: On this episode of The London Life we talk with Dr. Michael Lynch and Lane Hancock about free choice in early modern thought. So we cover all sorts of topics like just, you know, what are the contemporary intuitions that we have when we think about free choice? How does that map back on to early modern thoughts and conceptions related to it? How did the patristic and medieval era end up influencing ideas and thoughts about freedom and contingency and possibility and necessity? Are there broad consensus groups or camps that you find in the early modern period, particularly among the Reformed? How important was it for the early modern period to maintain a strong sense of divine freedom? Would they be okay with the modal collapse? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic... Baptist and confessional podcasts on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And in Thinking Seriously, we've tried to create or cultivate or encourage one of those things, an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, cheerful confessionalism. So, really, what that boils down to is not being a jerk to people and being open and hearing from them and saying, you know what, there's a lot of stuff to learn. I don't know everything and I want to hear about it, um, but also thinking crit- as critically as possible. So, we're not going to take the low hanging fruit, we're going to go for the best arguments and understand all that there is that we can understand. So, we have all sorts of guests on the show, all sorts of topics. It's a lot of fun. Today, I'm thrilled to talk about early modern conceptions of free choice and everything related to that. And this is probably the most well-prepared I've ever been for a podcast episode uh, because I have two brilliant people with me here in Lane Hancock and Michael Lynch. So if you don't know them, you're going to get to know them. You're going to enjoy them. If you're a regular listener, you know Michael because he's been on the show before. We got to talk John Davenant hypothetical universalism and uh, convincing everybody why we think John Owen might be wrong, or maybe he's right. I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion, but Michael, you were very convincing in your episode. So if you haven't listened to it, go take a listen. That was a lot of fun. So let's go ahead and get down to business. No one's here to listen to me. They're here to listen to you guys. So Michael, you've been on the podcast before. Why don't you just start? Tell me a little bit about yourself and what got you into thinking early modern period sort of research.
1: Yeah, so um, I work for the David Institute. Actually, currently, I'm teaching a course on free choice. So this is uh, an area that I've been doing a lot of reading about, not so much uh, in like um, medieval or uh, modern uh, thinking regarding free choice, but particularly early modern discussions of free choice. And so um, I've just been interested in early modern theology for a long time, and so that's why I'm interested.
0: And you, Lane?
2: Yeah. Uh, first, thanks, Jordan, for having me on. And second, um, I appreciate how much London Lyceum has taught me while I uh, do the mundane uh, dishes and the chores and whatnot. You've introduced, London Lyceum has introduced me to lots of really fascinating people and expanded my theological horizon. So for that, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, my name is Lane Hancock. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Notre Dame studying moral theology, although um my dissertation is on Jonathan Edwards. Uh, it is co-supervised by um, Jerry McKinney, who's a moral theologian, and Sam Newland, who uh, is a philosopher. So I'm having to do a little bit of both and um, uh, for Edwards, uh, philosophy and theology. And really have been interested in this topic even before I chose my dissertation topic. I did exam an exam topic that ran um, chronologically through uh, free will, free choice, uh, divine will, divine freedom, and theodicy from basically Suarez to Kant. Um, not every, obviously not every single figure there, but um, some of the main ones, uh, Suarez, Descartes, Leibniz, Spinoza, and obviously the early modern reformed. I actually took uh, um, Professor Lynch's uh, early modern uh, thought class, and we had a great time, so glad we could uh, take the show on the road here.
0: That is awesome. I didn't know you were studying with McKinney. That's cool. I've read what he doesn't have like a biotechnology book or something. I'm pretty sure I've read that one. Uh, And I found it very interesting. So it's definitely not my area of thinking, but I enjoy exploring that sort of stuff. So maybe we start when we think free choice related things. We we're talking, let's think contemporary intuitions regarding the topic and how early modern metaphysics might fit onto that or not fit onto that. So early modern thought on free choice, how does that really map onto how we think about it today?
2: That's a lame question. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for that one. I think uh, so this is the throat clearing part of the of the of the state of the question, I guess. But one of the things that um, uh, one of my professors said which really strikes true is if you want to get at because there's such a plurality about metaphysics and um, ontology and like what what's a cause like some of the basic first principles in early modern philosophy once you get outside of the schools is just so up for grabs that one of the best ways of framing of asking the same question is to zoom out and ask like what are the conditions what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for responsibility, for attributing praise and blame uh, to a particular person? Because if you ask free choice about, if you ask whether or not somebody just hands up, hands up or down, does somebody affirm free choice or free will, um, you can sort of, you can pull the room in that respect, but you oftentimes will miss some of the subtlety that, uh, that distinguishes, say, Descartes from Leibniz, from Spinoza. And these are all the outside the outsiders, which we won't be focusing quite as much on. But just to say, generally, if we want to scoop up the most and retrieve the most possible um, conceptual distinctions for retrieval and for use today, it's probably better to think about this conversation as when we we think about free choice and free will as a subset of a larger um, early modern conversation about the conditions for responsibility.
0: So before we get started, more into it, would you have any potentially just general cautions uh, when we think about it today? Because I know probably a good segment of our listeners are more reformed or Calvinistic. And anytime I go on Facebook, I could see somebody who just became a Calvinist or whatever. And they've got this very simplistic understanding of what's going on. So anything that we should be conscious of as we proceed into this conversation?
1: Yeah, I, I, I do have a couple. Um, I think to begin with, I think it's important to note that every theologian in the period, in the early modern period, excluding people like Spinoza or excluding um, uh, like some of the Sicinians or something like that, they all have basic truths, fundamental truths that none of them are ever going to deny. So, like, they all believe God has foreknowledge of everything, um, of all future events. Um, They all believe uh, that God uh, uh, decreed to create this world with all of its events rather than some other world. They all believe that there's at least some uh, dependence that all secondary causes have on the first cause which means that they're all generally going to hold to some sort of divine concursus, right? Um, And this excludes certain later developments, uh, Lane, you know, kind of uh, as we've been talking about this, right? So there are certain live options and there are certain not live options. So in 1650, among a Roman Catholic or a Protestant, a, a good kind of confessional one, right? Uh, deism on the one side and occasionalism on the other are not really live options. One denying secondary causality and one basically saying that, the, that secondary causes have no real kind of relationship with the first cause once the first cause creates, right? Um, and so um, I think it's just important to remember that Um, they're not asking every question conceivable or debating every question conceivable. They're debating and asking questions within a limited set of assumed truths that everyone agrees on, right? Um, And so there there are live questions and live options and not. And so, and then I suppose the other bit would be, that you should never presume that the ways that terms are being used today are being used exactly the same way by these early modern folk. But that's that's kind of an obviously historical question and that rings true in any uh, when you're doing history at all.
0: Yeah. No, that yeah. makes sense. Go right. ahead, Lane.
2: Yeah, I was just going to throw uh, in uh, two more things. One is uh, you know, determinism, libertarianism, compatibilism, all these terms are very frequent and come uh very quickly to the primary sources and one of the things that uh we had discussed is sort of like not um that or saying that these are anachronistic or that these like are somehow um that the primary sources are uh should not and cannot be labeled i think they can but i think the pedagogically um uh it's best to sort of work slowly through the complexity of these primary sources and let them sort of surprise you with the ways in which um, all the commitments that Mike just delineated uh, might be fleshed out. Um, And if I were to address myself, like many years ago, whenever I started uh, thinking about these types of questions, I think the simplistic way to put it um, would be something like this. In the early modern period, uh, this entire debate... Roman Catholic, Jesuit, uh, Dominican, Reformed, Lutheran, Armenian—like whatever, wherever you are—the whole debate is a dimmer switch, not an on-off switch, right? So when I was much younger, I thought it's like either predestination or free will. The light is either on or off. But in reality, like if you read widely and charitably across all these sources, what you find is actually uh, a superabundance of both ands. Um, uh, people inheriting this sort of Augustinian axiom that we ought to say yes to both divine foreknowledge and human freedom, and then thousands of models that sort of bloom out of a com- commitment to harmonize those things, which they, everyone in the field takes to be biblical deliverances. Um, so the whole debate is a dimmer switch, not an on-off switch.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's helpful. So as we move into the early modern period, they're not in a vacuum. They've got patristic medieval sources that are informing their views, I imagine. What are those main figures? Who are those main figures? What are those main important axioms, like you mentioned, Augustine, already? Is he the main figure? Is Thomas, is Scotus? Who who are the main players influencing just the discussion as we move into it?
1: Uh, It it seems to me that it depends on when you're um, placing... Uh, the theologians so you know uh, the kind of first second generation reformation you know generations including the roman uh, on the roman catholic side uh their their sourcing is obviously uh coming from late medieval uh kind of theology um h- however um that's late medieval theology that has been filtering through either thomas or, or basically Fr- there's kind of two streams it's really the Franciscan-Scotus stream or the more Dominican stream, right? Obviously. But once certain debates become really important, like the De Auxiliis controversy, uh, this, this was a controversy in the late uh, 16, uh, 16th century among Roman Catholics on the nature of grace and the helps of grace in auxiliis. Um, uh, they really honed in on questions like free choice and they wrote you know massive amount on them um and it's really that uh discussion that really uh sets the stage for i the high reformed orthodox period and then the, you know kind of a higher scholasticism that's reading these earlier guys like um someone uh uh like Bañez, Domingo Bañez, or Alv- Diego Alvarez. Um, and on the Jesuit side, I'm, th- I'm, I'm blanking on F- Fonseca is a guy um, and some of these other guys. And then like Suarez comes onto the scene. And again, it, it really is Roman Catholics who are reading from, you know, say Thomas all the way through the late medieval period into, uh, and I mean SCOTUS as well, like both of those streams, SCOTUS and Dominican, uh, coming in, and then you have the De Deuxilius controversy where you get this sharp debate between certain Jesuits and certain Dominicans who are being very careful, but kind of going their separate ways on free choice. And then the Reformed Orthodox are just trying to uh, enter into the debate insofar as uh, what they think is biblical and true and faithful to history and etc and so um, the main the main the main guys are um, you know we might say you know Scotus Bonaventure and Aquinas in the medieval period there are other names that come up quite often I mean we were talking about you who were we talking about? Lane, uh, the one that uh, uh, Suarez uh, goes after. Um, Banyas. No, no, no. He goes after the on the other side, uh, more like uh, general causality, uh, general.
2: Debye- oh, uh, Durandis. So,
1: yeah, Durandis. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, some of these other names are like guys that these are names that often get uh, entered into these such uh, in in these discussions, but once. Once the De Auxiliis controversy happens, it's those guys who are really setting the agenda, because the Jesuits have their guy like Molina, right, and the Dominicans have Alvarez and Bañez. and then all the other discussion kind of really flowers from those guys because those guys are already aping from the early, taking what's you know necessary from the earlier guys and kind of expanding lane.
2: No, oh, sorry, I didn't interrupt. I was no, no, no. I was, no, I'm I was done. just I'm flagging. I, well, I wanted to um, uh, back up a little bit and say when I referenced the Augustine, Augustine was arguing against Cicero that we should have to choose between one of these two options, namely that the that the gods for Cicero, but God uh, for Augustine has d- exhaustive foreknowledge of uh, future events and that hu- humans have free choice. That's City of God five nine, and it's sort of the paradigm by which the rest of the tradition walks. And so I just um, it's taken me a lot of time to figure out how does this tradition work and how does it operate? Because, and this is one point in which, um, I'm, pro- I'm, I'm again, speaking to my younger self about the relationship. Um, there's more of a methodological point about how to get analytic philosophy and analytic theology stuff to relate to scholastic theology. So the sheer scale and scope of the scholastic tradition, arguing about free choice is enormous. So here's a couple of stats. So Lombard's, Peter Lombard's sentences are four books that include 182 distinctions across almost a thousand pages. That's the church's textbook for almost a millennia. And what it is is a compendium of all these short sayings from patristic authors, um, very often tied to key scriptural loci. So insofar as Lombard is scriptural, the entire scholastic tradition continues uh, to both return to him and to the biblical text. I mean... If you look at Aquinas's question on predestination, uh, prima Parse, question twenty-three, almost all of, uh, all of the said contra authorities there are either pulled from Romans nine, or they're pulled from the late Augustine, or they're pulled from uh, Ephesians one and Titus two five. So this is a thoroughly scholastic, but also biblical exercise that keeps building on itself. So. From Lombard, you get Aquinas' Summa, which is structured into three parts, 614 questions, then subdivided into 3,125 uh, 3, articles. And so when we come to the Summa, and when we come to, there's less people that go to Lombard for uh, lots of different reasons, lots of the analytic philosophers, analytic theologians who go to Aquinas, it is it is possible to write an entire book on just uh the the second part of the summa to the detriment of the first part or like just ignoring it or, or bracketing it so a lot of uh i think what mike and i are stressing in terms of like reading um, bracketing intuitions about all the isms and reading as much as you can from the scholastic tradition before we come up with evaluative judgments of whether, whether we like it or not is meant to sort of Get uh, it's meant to sort of correct for a picking and choosing. Like somebody will really like you know the summa of the prima pars, but totally ignore the the you know the the second part um, on free choice. And um, the devil's in the details in terms of figuring out do these models of free choice and free will work. Um, but the scale is something that tends to be very foreboding for students.
0: Yeah, no, it it definitely feels foreboding at times. I, I am curious as we've talked about some of the different schools. Uh, and I might be jumping ahead here, but I'm just curious, when you think about the, the early modern period, particularly the, in the Reformed camp, are they trying to be self-consciously faithful to various strands of the tradition when they're thinking about this topic? Or are they trying to be original and creative in some sense and saying, look, it's all been, we've missed the boat here. We need to go back to Augustine or something. It was it, like the medieval period went astray. or Or how are they thinking about this topic?
1: I generally think that uh, the Reformed Orthodox, um, they're much more cautious about some of the metaphysical discussions that are intimately related with questions uh, uh, that come up in free choice. So you you will, uh, LeBlanc um uh, uh, this is uh, Louis LeBlanc. He was a French Reformed theologian uh, from like, let's say, 1625 to 1675. So he's, he's in this, this nice period right after the Auxiliis, and he's, he's able to read Suarez and all these other people. Um, he begins by saying that the Reformed generally um, spend a lot less time on some of the metaphysical questions related to free choice and are, we might say, more concerned with the theological uh, questions related to free choice. So whereas you will find in a uh, Roman uh, Roman Catholic uh, early modern scholastic text, them dealing with all these uh, questions related to the nature of the will and the nature of the intellect and their relation between the two and these sorts of things, you will get reformed addressing Generally, those sorts of questions, but they're more interested in like assuming that we have free choice, assuming that we have uh, uh, that 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 uh, there's some relationship between the intellect and the will with regard to the uh, an act being free and these sorts of things. They like to move the discussion rather quickly to things like how did the fourfold state of man, how is the fourfold state of man related to that, or how, do, how, is, how is free choice um, uh, related to uh, divine foreknowledge? And how does free choice relate to divine concursus? And how does free choice relate to the divine degree? Right? Um, so it's kind of the theological problems that they're interested in and the theological questions more so than the metaphysical ones. And they I think it's fair to say that they let the Roman Catholics do that work for them. Perhaps the argument would better be said that the Roman Catholics did that work previous to them, because I think the important thing to keep in mind here, I was reminded as I was teaching this uh, today, in fact, that um, the, uh, a professor of metaphysics at a university, first off, these universities in these Protestant places are just getting off the ground. And so the very first type of faculty that they're going to have is theological faculty, because, of course, that is what makes their 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 um, uh, schools, their universities, distinctive. And so the, the first thing will be is to put in a theological faculty. Uh, it is often the case that the philosophical departments don't get actually put in till later. Indeed, uh, someone noted to me that it wasn't until 1640 that the University of Leiden got their first metaphys- professor in metaphysics, right? That is in uh, part of it was because Utrecht already had one. So students that wanted to study metaphysics, they just go hear lectures over in Utrecht, and then they come back to Leiden and do their work at Leiden, and that that was it. Um, and so I think that this is kind of, I, I yeah, so. Um, novelness isn't something that is easily attainable when you don't even have a professorship for metaphysics. Whereas you do at these old Catholic universities, and so they can spend all their time studying, you know, one discipline like metaphysics and and writing on it. So Lane may have more to say about this
2: uh, uh Yeah, I came, I came prepared with exactly one hot take, and here it is. The most important metaphysician for early modern reformed free will and free choice debates is a Spanish Jesuit. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, Francisco Suarez. So again, sorry, this I, I promise this is also the last time I'm going to stat drop, but just the size of Suarez, uh, his metaphysical disputations, like needs to um, sort of like be put on the table so that it can be uh, viewed in its proper, like Catholic Uh, context, like everyone is using Suarez, like everyone is using Suarez's Disputation on Metaphysics. Um, Suarez cites over 247 authors across over 7,000 citations. The Omnia Opera printing runs 2,000 pages double-columned, right? So when this gets printed in 1597, as Mike said, every you know, theologian who wants to know what's the nature of a secondary cause? Um, uh, a, a Sort of an anachronistic question, but uh, nonetheless a, a relevant one is, um, they would have asked like, how do you avoid necessitarianism? How do you avoid Hobbesism or Spinozism? How do you figure out the modal transfer argument? Well, if you go to Turretin, that's only four pages and it's filled with distinctions, but you don't, um, and the distinctions don't, he's sort of like, you read it and you get the impression that the the distinctions are like known quantities. And the reason for that is because he's relying on knowledge of Suarez. Like if you want to get at the nature of necessity, if you want to get at the nature of secondary causes, depending on the primary cause, Suarez is your man. And just to give one example of how like, um, there's not the reformed view, like singular on free choice. Um, for my exams, I, I sort of worked through, um, the generational adoption of Suarez's metaphysical disputation. So the first, first generation, I forget which Dutch university, it may be um, the one that Mike just mentioned. Um, First generation just teaches straight Suarez, just teaches exactly a Jesuitical, uh, air quotes, uh, theory of secondary causality. Second generation teaches it uh, as being true for like mundane acts, but not true for salvific acts. Third generation, the notion of physical pre-motion, which I'm sure Mike can define later on, comes in. And then the f- fourth and fifth generations that come after that splinter off into like Cartesian metaphysics and Lockean metaphysics. So what Mike said is true, absolutely, for the time period up to 1650s and 1670s. But once you get past that, once you get past Descartes in the 1640s, you have this super abundant um blossoming of reformed metaphysical systems that go after Locke, they go after Descartes, they go after Leibniz and Wolff, they go off in all sorts of directions. So again, um, it is a hot take, but it's true. Suarez is arguably the most important metaphysician during this early time frame before the reforms start revising and um, building upon him. But it's all a collective Catholic metaphysical enterprise, except for the you know, the Sicinians and the people who want to like de- deny divine timelessness and divine passibility and all that kind of stuff.
0: Well, I, I love convincing historian related people to give hot takes. That's my favorite thing to do on the podcast. So if I'm going to push the knife in a little bit more, you've mentioned Suarez, you've mentioned Lombard is pretty important. In my own sort of like pop reform circles, those names aren't mentioned as we need to go read them and retrieve them why is that the case why is it always all 24/7 it's thomas aquinas what like what happened to suarez what happened to lombard
1: translations you yeah. have translation you have translation of most of thomas and indeed we're about to have all of it i mean in the next 10 years we'll have everything translated by thomas um And access, right? It's easily accessible as well. Like you can just look up Thomas in English and then you can find all the works just right there, right? Um, Suarez is translated a little bit, uh, not much, just a little bit. And it's in books that no one knows about. Published by St. Augustine's Press in South Bend, Indiana. So only people from Notre Dame know about it
2: go buy the books yeah. again if, if you're gonna have turreton on your shelf indeed have have right next to it uh, uh, Ferdoso's translation on efficient causality disputation 17 18 19 and his translation of Suarez on creation and conservation and then go just get
1: be- and then go get Fredoso on Molina and Divine knowledge yes yeah I mean just absolutely brilliant um, stuff so yeah I mean part of it is is there's no Latin and then um, no one knows because no one reads in these sources to begin with. I mean, uh, the person that's picking up Turton, how many of them are tracking down the sources that Turton, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. anyways, I mean, that's that's the bottom line is, is that Turton's easy, easily accessible for the reform person, but most of the other things he's quoting that's not accessible to you, um, unless it's like Augustine or something,
0: yeah. So.
2: And so the, the, the reformed metaphysicians that do exist, like Franco Burgersdick or Adrian Herboard, who were the metaphysicians for the following people, John Locke, Benedict Spinoza, and Jonathan Edwards, their writings are enormous because they're like Suarez plus plus. So it's two thousand pages of double column print, plus what Burgersdick and Herboard wanted to add on top of that. So there's a sense in which like just the scale, like you're even if we sort of corrected the translation, which I, I, I totally agree, like unfortunately, scholarship moves as quickly as the translations do, and the schol- and the academy does not incentivize translations whatsoever. Um, so that trend is not going to change. Um, the conditions under which we would get like a resurgence in reform scholastic metaphysics would have to be, I don't know, there'd have to be some super super rich uh, person who's willing to endow a decades long translation, uh, society towards that end. We
1: need, we need Robert Barron's general metaphysics. (laughs) Yeah. He was an Aberdeen doctor, hypothetical universalist says out front, I agree with Suarez and Fonseca on general concursus. Yet this is a dude that holds to absolute predestination reprobation. He's, uh, he's a reformed Anglican. Anyways, completely amazing, completely based. No one knows. He was he was known in the period he was being read. actually he was read by like uh, later you know like after it was published, like people cite him. LeBlanc citing him in France, but the book wasn't published in France. so like he got access to it somehow. So all that to say is is that you know there are works out there there were there were uh, in, and that book's not too long. it's like 350 pages. Um, of latin you know uh, it's a general metaphysics and uh but these sorts of things uh, where are you going to go to get metaphysics from a reformed theologian in the early modern period i'll wait while you tell me
2: uh francisco suarez
1: (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly right and only and only that which has been translated right which is only a little bit so anyways or penner or something like that whatever he's done so all that yeah. to say is, is that, uh, um, yeah, that this is my point, is is that, you know, lots of these conversations are had without any awareness of, like, what these guys actually believed in metaphysics because no one actually reads any of these metaphysicians. Metaphys- and then, as Lane said, once you get some of these major, later 17th century figures, I mean, it, like, goes wild. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, and then Futsius spins... Pages going after Cartesianism and Cartesian metaphysics and stuff, right? Uh, who's reading? Who, who in our reformed world is reading Descartes metaphysics? And then who's reading? Futsius reading Descartes metaphysics, right? Like, there's just no. It's just there's hardly anyone, and so this this world is wide. It's and wild.
2: Two sources, just so people don't have to take our like word for it over a podcast. Um, I think this the book that I recommended the most. Um, over and over again in my time at Notre Dame for people who were interested in this topic and were interested in like ecumenical uh rapprochement like broadly speaking but also just interested in like the exchange of ideas and exchange of gifts across traditions the most important was beyond Dorton de Exilius which is a it's unfortunately a Brill volume super expensive but at the same time it's co-author it's a primarily historical book um and it gives you uh, it's written by Roman Catholic and Protestant authors. Uh, I think everyone's a Mueller student. Mike wrote a review for it. So th- that first of all, that book is great. And then the second thing i was I was gonna add, um, Mike mentioned uh, Sidney Pinner. For people who are like, you know let's let's see let's see what Suarez is actually up to if he's worth all this stuff that um Mike and Lane are hyping it up to be, you can Google Sidney Pinner and Suarez and you will get his webpage where he where Sydney is doing the yeoman's work of translating bits and pieces and really interesting pieces on um, from uh, Suarez's De Grazia um, where there'll be questions like does the will always to follow the last judgment of the practical intellect and sort of all that sort of stuff um, so there have ha- there have been like strategic translations um, but again uh, it's all all, all thanks due to the Sydney
0: Cool. Yeah, Sydney seems super awesome. So, I don't know. Years ago, I was writing an essay and I didn't know what in the world I was doing. So I just emailed Sydney. No idea who he is really, other than he's like footnoted in some stuff I was reading. Super awesome. He's like replying with these massive replies, telling me yeah. all this stuff. Super cool. Um, keeping on free choice. Like we've mentioned quite a bit of terminology. I don't know. It probably makes sense to to pause just a little bit and hit the timeout. So freedom, contingency, possibility, necessity, like diachronic, synchronic contingency. I imagine most theology students who go and pick up a book like Richard Muller's Free Choice, or, I don't remember the title, in early modern thought or whatever it is, they start seeing these diachronic, synchronic stuff and it's like, what in the world is going on? So maybe just help me, give me that lay of the land a little bit as we think about freedom and move forward towards thinking more just distinctive camps in the reform period like how are these terms being used So I
1: would not start with Muller Muller would be one of the last places I'd start with Um the the first place I would start if if this was a let's say a uh, uh, fairly well educated but someone who just hasn't really read anything in this field early modern reformed uh freedom uh, or reformed thought like uh, uh on free choice like what am I saying What I'm saying is, is that you should go read *Reformed Thought on Freedom*, which uh, is a book edited by some uh, students of Antoine Vos, uh, who was a a, a philosopher, kind of theologian philosopher who wrote on Scotus, uh, Dun Scotus. Anyways, um, that book is a primary source reader with a very nice introduction, as well as. Um, disputations from various authors um, spanning from Zonky all the way through the 18th century, like I think Damore or something like that is one of the later ones. Anyways, um, helping you to get a sense of the way that these things are talked about by at least the Reformed. But to be honest, if you read them and you read the book carefully, Actually, what you'll find out is is that this is pretty much the way everyone talks, um, including the Roman Catholics. Except as I noted to you, that the Roman Catholics do more of the they also talk a lot about the philosophical side of things, which none of these disputations do too heavily. Um, I have my I have my issues with reform thought on freedom. Um, you mentioned uh, synchronic contingency and diachronic uh, contingency. I'm. I, uh, I, I I'll just say I've never seen it um, in all of my reading of early modern theology, I've never once in their discussions on free choice, even in their discussions of how how like uh, free choice relates to divine foreknowledge or something like that um, and, and I at this point I feel like I've read a considerable amount. I've never once seen them ever make the distinction, that the reformed thought on freedom editors make between this, uh, that there was Aquinas and Aristotle held to um, diachronic contingency, and that um, uh, where where in, in the kind of uh, uh, the uh, principle of plenitude, uh, where every possibility must be actualized. These are I never see any of that discussed among the early moderns and instead what i see are someone like leblanc saying thomas and scotus on their definition of free choice is basically the same literally that's what they'll say Um, they do not see any major fundamental difference they define it basically as freedom from coercion um and uh, basically willingness or spontaneity or something like that um uh and so they they are not seeing it. So what whatever whatever um someone like antoine voss and some of the reformed thought on freedom folk think about that story in the history of ideas i do not see early modern theologians or philosophers saying that same story or recognizing that same story. That doesn't mean that The Reformed Thought on Freedom folk are wrong in their reading of Scotus and Thomas, it would just mean that none of the early moderns picked up on it, or at least self consciously picked up on it, uh, because I never see them addressing that as an issue. They never talk about time relative to a choice, except to say things like in acto, in actu primo, or Uh, In Actu Secunda, or uh, they'll talk about uh, us having um, um, uh, 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 simultaneity of potency, but not potency of simultaneity. Um, They'll talk about those sorts of things that are somewhat related to time. But apart from that, I never see them talking about the, you know, how Aquinas has this one view of. Uh, of choice, that means that the possibility, the possibility that that in um, at any particular time you only have one option at any particular time or something like that. Whereas in Scotus, he allows you to have two options at the same time at at any particular time or something like that. I never see them talking like that, and so I'm hesitant to say that. So there's my there's my hot take. Relative to reform thought on freedom, folk, I don't know if Lane has more comments about that. Well, I was
2: just going to throw out uh, again, speaking to my younger self. Um, you can actually get somewhat up to speed on all of the terms. I mean, grant, granted, like free choice is a name for something that many people can use in different ways. So that's kicking back to my like we're looking at conditions for responsibility, especially once you get out of the uh, got out of the schools. But uh, the reading list is actually not that hard. I mean, you start with Aristotle's De Interpretone. That's about 14 pages. Then you read uh, uh, book five of Boethius's uh, Constellation of Philosophy about uh, different kinds of necessity. So Aristotle gives you um, how do the gods know future contingents, what's the relationship between future future propositions of value, and then Boethius comes in and sort of comments on that, and then... um, the next place to go is uh, Lombard um, Book One, Distinctions thirty-nine through forty-one on foreknowledge, predestination, and then like into the forties, you get into the divine will, and then Book Two, uh, Distinction twenty-five is after creation and on uh, free choice. Um, that l- Lombard there, you're we're at what? Uh, uh, 40, 50 pages total just to get started there. And then once you get, once you have those figures down, Lombard's great because he has um, what's taken to be the authoritative sentences and pronouncements from the late Augustine on these topics. So by reading, um, I mean, obviously include City of God, book five here. Um, but even even if you put Aristotle, Boethius, uh, Augustine, and Lombard together um as what I just laid out, you're looking at only like 50 to 70 pages and like you're ready to go and you're ready to get into the um, Summa and navigate the Summa by question and answer. Don't feel like you have to read all of it, but pick distinctions that are interesting to you. And then once once you were to do that, um, once you basically get into Thomas, there's a certain sort of like synergy around him, as Mike said, he's been translated. And so there's been people debating about him. You're not going to find any scholar, any analytic theology scholars working out of Lombard. You will find tons working out of a Thomas. So if you get Aristotle, uh, Boethius, Augustine, Lombard, into Aquinas, with um, that background, you can then sort of be a discerning reader of contemporary analytic theology and analytic philosophy. You can sort of decide whether or not you think Aquinas is a compatibilist or a libertarian. Um, So that would be my short reading list.
0: So when I think about Early modern reform period and their general views on free choice. Take Turretin, for example. Should I think along the lines of there are broad camps like the Roman Catholics think X, the Socinians think Y, and the Reformed have view Z? Is it that simple?
1: No. <laughs> um. What is somewhat reliable? is that Jesuit, Jesuits and Arminians typically agreed on their position on free choice. And generally speaking, the Reformed preferred the Dominicans on these topics. But I actually noted to you earlier on that Robert Barron, who wrote a metaphysics track, he explicitly throws his hat with the um, the Jesuits on this. And so there's diversity within the Reformed, I'm sure that you could find somewhere a monstrant who liked Domingo Banez or something. Actually, I really have that. I have a hard time believing that. But but, uh, I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Um, And so, yeah, so those are the lines. It's not Roman Catholic versus Reformed. It's really certain Roman Catholic theologians versus other Roman Catholic theologians. And the Reformed have the same issue just with regard... To Protestants. And they're basically debating the same points among their own. Um, And so, yeah, it it doesn't work that clearly. Um, Yeah. So that's more true.
2: Yeah. It's also worth noting that um, when we ask about free choice, we could be asking about in two respects. We could ask be asking about with respect to acts regarding uh, God's salvation of a particular individual, or we could just be asking about mundane actions. So for example, if you look at, um, uh, again, looking at Suarez, he's addressing um, uh, the latter, not the former. He's addressing like mundane, on the whole, he's uh, addressing mundane sort of concurrence uh, of God as primary cause with the secondary cause. He addresses issues on grace and uh, auxilium uh, um, elsewhere and other tracts. So um, this is really important because uh for Jonathan Edwards, for example, Freedom of the Will is primarily a philosophical book. He mentions predestination all at once, and that's in the conclusion about a book he'd like to write in the future. Um, and that's actually not bizarre. That's pretty normal because there's two different ways of, of getting at it. And just because um, just because you one theologian has a particular model about free choice for mundane actions does not mean that the, that same model is in play for divine acts. Um, Thomas Aquinas, for example, has a very different account of how the intellect works works with respect to the will in the act of faith than when, it, when he's just talking about mundane human actions.
0: Okay, so I've got to know, I'd like to spend some time on this, because when it comes to free choice, I look at a lot of the contemporary literature, and a lot has been made of things like the necessitarian threat with modal collapse where if you take a reform view of free choice whatever that means everything ends up being coming necessary and i look even at contemporary stuff kate rogers basically just says yep everything's necessary uh, i even read james Dolezal on his book on divine simplicity god without parts and he seems to how do i defend divine simplicity well i just say everything is ne- necessary in some sense um didn't like God doesn't really have the free, like the free, the, the breadth of free choice that some may want to say is baked into what it means to be, to be free. And so then I see other people like Mark Jones looking at pointing the gun at Edwards saying it, it's Edwards fault because he ends up having this super mechanical view of freedom. So that's a big way of me just saying like, oh, it seems we want to have a strong view of divine freedom. I think, when I read the reformers or the reformed orthodox, that seems like something that really matters. So, should we be willing to give up um, and let there be ne- a lot of things be necessary? I don't know if that's making sense. I'll let you guys sort it out because you're smarter than me.
2: <laughs> um, I think the first thing to say is so. If you look at the opponents of Say divine simplicity or divine timelessness, which is taken to generate a lot of these problems, or divine immutability, um, from say like Turretin and really a, sort of any polemical textbook. Um, Johann Friedrich Stoffer has a list of like uh, similar objectors. They're primarily going to be Socinian, and that what I'm not saying. Internet, a, internet aggregators and Twitter people on Twitter. Um, what I'm not saying is that people who call into question divine simplicity and divine timelessness or divine immutability and and therefore like motivate the modal collapse worry um, are Socinians. But I am just pointing historically to the fact that like insofar as Socinianism was sort of like a persecuted minority, it represents like a minority intuition in the schools. That being said, you can ask, you can sort of like non-anachronistically ask questions about modal collapse. I think I looked that up on Google Ingram and it basically only exists from like 1985 onward. If you look up necessitarianism, um, it goes a little bit further back. But the chief um, boogeymen um, from the early modern period that are taken to be, to sort of like just accept and put out there in argumentation um, as being pro-necessitarian are Spinoza and Hobbes. And those guys are like, so you have Spinoza, Hobbes, and a couple socinians it's just a minority intuition so it could be the case that some school of salamanca or genevan academy theologian wrote like a thousand page d- disputation on divine simplicity and against uh spinoza i know that i think there were a couple of um those kinds of articles written by the genevan academy once spinoza sort of like made his way into france um but you're just not going to have as many people Running to address that necessitarian worry, and certainly not in the, in the sort of framing that we have it, where we want to sort of like divinely perfect, we, I mean, like analytic philosophers um, who might be critical of divine simplicity, where they want divine perfection, pure act, but just somehow not impassibility. And to be completely transparent, that this isn't my, the reason why I'm deferring to say, like, I guess I'm himholling and saying like there's not too many necessitarians running around is just to say like this isn't my area of expertise. Um, I'm on the hook for getting Edwards off the hook for necessitarianism, um, but even he is like far later than the stuff that I think is thicker and more rich that Mike knows. So with that, I like hand the baton off to Mike but Before about Mike, before you go,
0: so you think you can get Edwards off the hook for necessitarianism?
2: Yeah. uh, Give me your uh, three-minute pitch. (sighs) Okay. Um, I mean, the the chapter's still (laughs) to be written. Um, uh, But in short, uh, Mike's probably going to talk about differences between uh, hypothetical necessity, absolute necessity, necessity the consequence, and then that necessity the consequent. Um, So Edwards in part one, section three, defines different kinds of necessity. Section four does as well. Natural moral necessity. Those aren't as important. Section three is where all the action happens. Um, so Edwards uh, distinguishes between um, three kinds of necessity. Um, he first ties it to a very complex um, notion of um, uh, metaphysical or philosophical necessity. But nonetheless, if you like, spend some time in this section and take it apart, he's got uh, absolute necessity, which is uh, two and two makes four, um, uh, that God exists as and is infinite. Um, so these are these are truths that are absolutely true by definition of terms this is a very again a very common practice that goes all the way back to boethius and then uh he also distinguishes uh necessity of um necessity of the past sort of past fixity um planiga wrote an article interacting with edwards on this i don't think he reads edwards correctly shocker of all shocks um uh not because I say that not because Planek is not a careful reader of the foreign tradition, he is. I just meant like it's uh, um, not surprising that someone who studies Edwards would be uh, contending on interpretations of Edwards. Um, so, absolute necessity, definition by definition of terms is number one. Past fixity is number two, and then necessity, of the consequence. Is, I always get these mixed up. Is it necessity, of the consequence, like conditional necessity? Right, right. Hypothetical,
1: ne- hypothetical necessity is. Necessity
2: of the consequence. See, Freudian slip. I can't even save Edwards because I can't remember <laughs> uh, which one it is, but it's necessity of consequent. Um so three uh three conditions, uh three kinds of necessity there in part one and over and over again at the beginning of each uh, several section headings he says again I'm only talking about necessity of the help me out my cons- Con-
1: consequence is hypothetical.
2: Yeah. Over and over again, so if you just like pull up the Edwards uh, website and and Google um, in uh, uh, Works Volume 1, Necessity of Consequence, you can find it uh, across entirely over and over again across the writing. So um, it'd also be very weird um, given the fact that Edwards, I don't know, I, I, I need to go back and revisit the interpretations and the objections of Edwards as a necessitarian, but it would also be very weird if at the same time Edwards is arguing against enthusiasm and a proto version of hyper-Calvinism, which takes that God denies that God wills both the means and the ends, if Edwards is promulgating a version of necessitarianism. So at best, I think the accusation could be like Edwards collapses into necessitarianism, but the idea that he's like actively, um, promulgating a necessitarianism flies entirely in the face of not just uh, part one, section three, but several sections. And I'm sorry, that was, that was um, more than three minutes.
0: So. No, that's perfect. That's exactly what I wanted. I would love to hear more about the, the distinctions that we've mentioned here, hypothetical necessity, et cetera, because it seems to me that a lot of the, the contemporary worries about necessitarianism seem to look at some of these distinctions and say these are distinctions really without a difference and it doesn't really help get out of the problem. So I'd love to hear just what these distinctions are.
1: Well, uh, I I was going to start with just noting basic truths that every early modern would have held to. So first off, they're all holding that God is most free. He has most absolute freedom, right? So he's not like being forced... The only thing that he is not free to do is basically, uh, uh, as noted, like mathematical truths are generally outside the realm of changeability. And then, Unless also, you're Descartes. Huh?
2: Unless you're Descartes. Okay, but go ahead.
1: well, yeah. Uh, anyways, anything after that's coming, you know, after, I don't know, 1625, you know, it's shady. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyways and of course God can't like contradict himself. He can't do something that would be contradictory to his nature and these sorts of things. So anything that's uh contradictory in and of itself or contradictory, uh, to God's nature or something like that, he can't do, but he's basically free and uh, creation is free, which means that in a certain sense, everything is contingent, even necessary acts. Like if I put a, uh, well, like, uh, even had God created no rational human beings or no animals or anything like that, just let the world play out. It all happened contingency insofar as God, uh, as the first cause, uh, didn't need to create all things. And therefore, uh, they happen contingency in that way. Um, however, most of the time, contingency and necessity are talking, we, we want to limit it to this uh, the secondary causality level, Right. We're not we're not talking about right because because we want to say what's the difference between a rock falling off the cliff just on its own because of like weather uh, and 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 my my decisions and why is one moral and one's not moral and these sorts of things. Right. And um, they would note that uh, because of God's foreknowledge uh, and because of God's decree and perhaps because perhaps. Because of God's uh, divine concursus, depending on your view of divine concursus, um, uh, there is a necessity of infallibility attached to those events. Uh, um, yet, um, they want to insist that just because something will infallibly take place doesn't mean it necessarily takes place. Uh they they want to say things like um, a contingent act can be both uh, can be uh, be both it will take place uh, per God's foreknowledge of the act or per God's decree of the act or per God's uh, 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 physical promotion or whatever right or we might even say it's going to take place. Um, relative to the last judgment of the practical intellect uh, or, uh, um, you know, or whatever. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, they're going to say that um, that's, that's, a, that's a hypothetical necessity. Um, they're still, um, uh, it's not an absolute necessity for a couple different reasons. One, uh, God uh, created us with potencies to multiple effects at least as rational creatures. And so, whereas lightning, uh, in a partic- any given particular situation, if it hits a tree, given the situation that it's in, you know, um, uh, the weather situation that it's in, it's only has the potency to destroy that tree or to hurt that tree and to burn that tree, to scold it, to break it apart. Um, but I have the potency with respect to a tree to do a thousand other things now, because of God's, uh, uh, because of God's foreknowledge or because of God's decree, it may be true that I will only choose one potency or exercise one uh, potency that I have. I might cut up the tree, but and here's the important point: they all want to insist that whether we're talking about God's decree, God's foreknowledge or even physical pre-motion, it doesn't take away my power for alternativity uh, in couple different respects. One, I have the power uh, to um, omit the act instead of doing the act. This is, uh, um, uh, this is called... Uh, uh, this is what happens when we talk uh, late at night. Uh, terms... Um, co- uh, Free, we, we have freedom of contradiction, right? I can do an act or not do an act, and I have freedom of contrariety. I can uh, choose to do A or choose B or choose C or choose D. And um, just because it's the case that if it's true that God wills that I choose A, that I will choose A, The necessity is attached to the whole statement, not to the, it doesn't make the consequent thing necessary. And I retain the power even when I actually, and moreover, let's, let's remember that in God's like decree or God's foreknowing of it, he's foreknowing the secondary causing cause acting. It's not as if he's foreknowing simply his own decree. Um, And that that decree doesn't include the secondary causes in what they do. This is actually, if you go back and read, we mentioned Augustine, City of God 5. This is the tact he takes against Cicero. So Cicero, um, he's against the idea of fate. Um, he, He hates the idea of fate. And so he goes after prophecy. Uh, Because prophecy is attached to the fates, right? You read the fates by, you know, looking at a bird, cutting it up, whatever, right? Divination. Um, And he says, well, prophecy is not true because gods don't know the future. Uh, And so their prophecy is just bunk and fate clearly is bunk (laughs) because the gods don't even know what's going to happen or something like that um, sort of thing. And, um, Augustine says that that's atheism. Basically to say that God doesn't know, have foreknowledge is atheism. You might as well just be an atheist at that point because you're just denying God. Um, so don't try to have, you know, your cake and eat it too, Cicero. You, 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 uh, in terms of trying to, uh, redefine God or the gods such that you can still have free choice in the gods. No, no, no. You, you have to get rid of the gods if you're going to deny that they have, uh, knowledge of future contingencies or whatever. Um, uh, but Augustine says in response, one of the things that God's foreknowledge has is not simply, um, everything that will happen, but how those secondary causes act, whether necessarily or freely. So like a rock falling on the ground, uh, necessary, or we might say like a bird picking its, or no, we, uh. A dog going on a hunt is what I saw earlier today in one of the early moderns, right? Uh, the dog goes on a hunt, and once he's on the hunt, there's no choices involved. He just acts out of necessity, right? Those he knows those causes, but he knows those causes as done that way, and then he also knows those causes that are free, and that would be like human actions and these sorts of things. And so there's this whole edifice of trying to understand that, like. Like you really do need to be able to make sense of Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter Five, Verse uh, Second Section. Uh, all, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things comes to pass immutably, infallibly. That's a that's that that for them is this hypothetical necessity. That's a necessity of the consequence. Okay. Yet by the same providence, He ordered them to fall out according to the nature of secondary causes either necessarily freely or contingently and that's what they held so now you may say i don't i don't i i don't buy the distinction or i don't think that you can really hold to divine foreknowledge and human freedom like that's like squaring a circle or something like that well they also address those objections Right, and so those objections would need to be heard. I've read multiple objections in the past couple of days, exactly related to that objection. Right, and so all that to say is is that they address many of these objections. Whether or not it's to a satisfaction of a of a modern philosopher is well. Uh, when I read uh, sent for me from Lane from a standard encyclopedia article on divine foreknowledge and human freedom and the very first three sentences say that theological fatalism is any doctrine that says if a first cause has uh, has foreknowledge of all things then all things are not free and it's absolutely fatalistic well then that's every single theologian from you know the first century AD the apostle Paul all the way up to the Sicilians, basically, right? I mean, that's an insane thing to say. I mean, you can say it all you want, but then that means that both Molina, someone as far left as live options go on free choice, and someone like Banez, on the other hand, are just all theological fatalists, who cares what they said relative to how divine concursus happens, relative to how divine foreknowledge happens, because they all agree that God has no, uh, a certain knowledge of future contingencies. So it's over. It's already over in the first three sentences of the dictionary of this dictionary. And so this, these are the sorts of things I read. And I think to myself, these conversations, it, it's, it's not as if I think the one is stupid and the other's not. It's that they are so far away from understanding each other that if they and and they they have such extreme differences of presuppositional kind of assumptions, you know, kind of lay, you know, uh, kind of uh, kind of running with the way that they use these terms, whether determinism, fatalism, whatever, that it seems like it's like, um, it becomes kind of mean trying to have that conversation is meaningless unless you first assume the sorts of theological assumptions that everyone is making in the period and then judge them by those criteria. Like, I mean, yeah, if holding to simplicity means you're a determinist and everything's necessary, well, okay, from an analytical or a modern theological perspective, you can have that opinion all you want. But just know that that would basically throw under the bus a large swath of the Christian tradition, right? And th- and then that's and then they're all determinists and you know necessitarians. And so this is kind of my concern: is is that I'm not quite sure what the what the payoff is. If if the payoff is simply to make philosophical sense of how God can be pure act while at the same time. All things not being necessary, or something like that. I understand those concerns. And I I would actually suggest that most of the people that are having those conversations are probably not well versed in the medieval and early modern discussions of those topics because they did address those topics, albeit in a way in which they're just never going to jettison simplicity for the sake of avoiding necessitarianism. Indeed, I see oftentimes uh, some of these theologians saying, um i you do not have a lot of cons- over they, they're not overly concerned by the sorts of things that modern philosophers seem overly concerned about, like God being too much involved. wait God's getting too involved here no no no, I mean they're just not concerned with that. they want to have God as mo as much involved with the world as possible with allowing for free choice, and uh, us not being robots, you know, sort of thing. But, like, apart from that, right, they want to involve, they are not scared of involving God into places. But, of course, modern philosophers, like, uh, that is that is not a, that is not a, um, uh, an impulse, right, is, let's get God involved as much as we can, and then carve out room or space to make sure that we hold that human beings are free or something like that. But this is the way that they'll talk. And so, okay, yeah. so there's all my hot take because <laughs> uh, you oh, be riled right. up. Yeah.
2: Um, so, Jordan, your question was like, uh, are, uh, it was something along the lines of like, aren't you just, are you really solving the problem of modal collapse or necessity transfer or necessitarianism? Are you just um, sort of are you just like renaming parts of the problem rather than like yeah. actually solving that problem? Um, uh, Mike stole a little bit of my thunder. There's a lot of thunder there, uh, but he still at least <laughs> one of my, one of my lightning bolts, which was going to be again, Westminster confession five two. um, God by the same, you know, the first cause by the same providence order orders things to fall out, uh, to, to the nature of secondary causes, either necessarily, necess- necessarily freely or contingently. Um, and then we have uh, Summa uh, Prima Pars, Question Nineteen, Article Eight. Uh, I answer: The divine will imposes necessity on some things willed, but not on all. The reason uh, of this is some have chosen. Uh, the reason of this some have chosen to assign to intermediate causes, holding that what God produces by necessary causes is necessary, and what He produces by contingent causes contingently. Uh, this is not to seem like a sufficient explanation. And then from that point on, you know, Aquinas in that article and really, uh, there, and then, in De potentia, um, unpacks what I've just sort of taken to calling like multimodalism, like what you're asking, um, or like what the analytic philosopher is pushing at. And I think it's a fair push, um, to ask of these sources to like deliver on is their commitment. I think it's primarily a, 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 faith commitment, um, that's downstream from like biblical texts where um, you know uh, you, you want to keep necessity and contingency together um, my like gut response having not done um, an enormous amount of like trying to get the two like analytic philosopher objections to meet up with the medieval and scholastic material is just to say like look why um, the nature of the first cause uh, creating, sustaining, conserving, and concurring with created entities is like just as mysterious as the notion that the divine will has uh, the ability to cause things necessarily and contingently. Um, this is like my placeholder answer, which is to say like once we press on any one particular point at which God relates to create the created order, I think we're going to get some like either spooky answers or some like very difficult, um, uh, difficult things to reconcile. Um, But I wanted to bring up the, like the similarity between Westminster and Aquinas, just to say like, this is very much a Catholic project. We're all on the same boat together, having to say yes to uh, necessity uh, in certain areas of created existence and yes to contingency in different respects. Um, Now you may think that's sort of, you know, that's nice, a nice little scriptural like faith commitment, but that it doesn't really have any traction on it. For someone who's objecting on that uh, point, I would just say like, um, don't discount all the primary sources just because, you know, Mike and I don't have ready-made answers for some of the most pressing and most erudite objections. The Linda's, as accepts, uh, encyclopedia article I actually misread the first time through so I think I do think she like uses uh, theological fatalism in ways that um, sort of like are very confusing and uh, somewhat frustrating for someone who's reading all, lots of Suarez and then trying to toggle back before back and forth between um, that and the SCP but all that to be said I think um, what's worth What's worth uh, doing is tearing with the primary sources to see if they can make good on those distinctions. Because at one point we were all in some youth group or Bible study where we thought predestination and free will like could not be reconciled or made compatible. But here we are spending an enormous amount of time on podcasts and reading, (laughs) uh, trying to make sense of them. So it, it doesn't. The necessity and contingency thing just seems to be the same species of a type of. Faith seeking understanding, where it's like we've got to hold these together, and may you know, may the best argument in support of that win, and let's translate some sources along the way.
0: That's good. I I remember when I first became a Calvinist, I somebody told me to read R.K. McGregor Wright. I don't know if you guys have read that book, No Place for Sovereignty, and it's pretty much like just regurgitating Gordon Clark, and basically free will doesn't exist. That's impossible, just yeah. across the board, uh, and. Me not knowing anything at all at the time was like, oh, that I must, that must be the reform position. (laughs) Yeah. Finding out that's not the case was very helpful and enlightening.
2: I think that's a good, it's a good, um, uh, like pastoral thing to, we've talked about lots of really complicated terms, but like to the pastors or the seminarians or the people who are like, want, listen to London Lyceum for its sort of marching and pastoral value. Here's the like takeaway. Your reformed tradition or, you know, really the early modern period has an abundance of conceptual distinctions and options for free choice and how to interpret biblical text and how to make sense of created uh, realities, secondary causes. And you don't need to be forced into a pop level like either or. Back to the dimmer switch versus the on-off switch. Prefer the dimmer switch to the on-off switch. You don't have to choose between free will and predestination. You can have both um, by reading the tradition.
0: Man, this, is, this has been really awesome. You guys have been bringing the heat for me today, so I appreciate you doing that. Before I close up, I, I do want to ask one quick question. If you, If somebody came and said, what is one historical source that I've got to read? In the early modern period reform thinking on this topic who are you going to say i mean i'm gonna i got a hunch what lane's gonna say but i i don't want to
2: <laughs> what uh, what was it what were you gonna guess
0: i was gonna say you're gonna say edwards just because you've been devoting oh your... no no actually oh, not. not okay um, tell me that
2: okay um yeah i think um so I feel like I've, I've, all I've been doing is handing down a syllabi. Um, but in addition to like the Aristotle, Boethius stuff, um, William Ames basically writes his own version of reformed sentences. Um, so that's like first level introduction. Like here's everything, um, uh, like in its in its proper place in its proper location but he's going to give you terms that you may not, you may or may not understand at which point you like bring in Turretin. And if Turretin leaves you unsatisfied about like n- naming different kinds of necessity, that's when you go visit Sidney Penner and Suarez. Um, so that would be like my uh, arising um, uh, through the, uh, through the texts um, in, in order of like most convenient and most readily accessible uh, William Ames's is mayor of theology, Francis Turretin's institutes of Atlantic theology, and then, um, tracing out the more metaphysically speculative questions at the end.
1: Um, if if they do English, I still think Reformed Thought on Freedom is probably the best introduction to it because it gives all the distinctions and then you can read like little disputations from various people on it. Um, and I think you'll get a good sense if you read it carefully. You're not going to get everything uh, in a first read. Like if this is the first time you've picked up on this stuff, there's no way you'll figure out everything, but you'll get a general lay. Um, if if the person did Latin, I definitely know where they should go. They should go to Louis LeBlanc's Disputations on Free Choice in his Theological Disputations. It's the, almost the only thing he ever published. Um, anyways, and uh, he has like 12 or 15 different Disputations on Free Choice. Free choice, three on like free choice in general, then like a couple on free choice and divine concursus, then a couple on free choice and divine foreknowledge, then a few on free choice and the divine decree, then free choice relative to man in his created state and fallen state and all these disputations, they're long, they're like 50 VCs apiece, big old paragraphs. And what's great about him is unlike the other guys who are doing more positive theology he's doing more survey so he's surveying the roman catholic and reformed world and talking about how they answer questions differently and then he's also trying to say this is logomachy this is like word war stuff or this is like uh this is like there's no substantial disagreement this is disagreement over words and stuff anyways louis leblanc he's like my Right now, I'm on, like, an absolute kick. I've been doing LeBlanc now for, I don't know, one and a half years. And uh, eventually, I'll just read everything he wrote, uh, every one every one of these disputations. Um, I can... Well, Owen loved him. Baxter loved him. Anytime those two guys both like a person, he's probably pretty good, given the fact that they hated each other. So... Um, yeah. So, but this is all Latin right now. Although there is a lot that I've translated some stuff and put it online, but it's been a while since I've put any of LeBlanc online anyways, but I've been translating through a ton more anyways, LeBlanc, Louis LeBlanc.
2: Could I, could I go back and uh, yeah. maybe explain why through Edwards under the bus? It's not because I think he's like heterodox or necessitarian. It's just sort of like, um, we didn't spend as much time talking about it, but like after Like uh, Locke is like extraordinarily annoying to me. Um, uh, uh, And basically, so he writes a chapter um, in the essay on the human understanding uh, book two, chapter 21 of power that goes through five different editions in which he's like changing his mind over and over again. He's corresponding with Arminian theologians and trying to get clear on like what is freedom of will entail and require. And he, he has this letter where he's like, "I don't know how to make any sense of this. I tried to read Calvin and Turretin, but they're like, they're like Greek to me, and they make no sense." Um, Wait, does, Locke, so,
1: oh, does Locke actually yeah. say that he he tried to read Turretin? Uh,
2: yes. Uh, wow. Quote: I went, I went to Calvin, Turretini, and others who uh. I am compelled to admit have treated that subject in such a way that I can by no means grasp what they say or what they mean. So discordant does everything in them seem to me that with the sense of simplicity of the gospel that I am unable to understand the writings, much less reconcile them with holy writ. And the reason why I mention this and um, like what I was uh, in talking about Edwards is like Locke wins. Locke is for the English speaking world, what Descartes was for the French speaking world and what Leibniz was for the German speaking world. So at the like fount of what will become the new logics and metaphysics for the English-speaking world is someone who like was largely ignorant of the scholastic sources and debates on free choice, and Edwards has got to like toe this line where he's got like Turretin and Van Maastricht in one hand and Locke in the other, and if you look at how he interacts between those two, um, he especially in his notebooks like he's far more critical of Locke than he is a fan of Locke, but he's having to Go at the pace uh, of his readership, who is primarily Lockean dissenting pastors uh, and teachers. So uh, I'm not recommending people start with Edwards, not because I think he's heterodox or he's problematic, but because I think the context in which he's writing is so extraordinarily convoluted and like up for grabs that it's probably better to start with LeBlanc or Ames or Turretin and then go read Edwards.
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense. And and since Lane, we've been dunking on analytic philosophers and theologians, and I consider myself an analytic theologian. I'll dunk on them too. So Michael, you mentioned earlier on, like, at some point, if you want to go this route, you pretty much have to reject everybody until the Sicilians. And I think there are a lot of modern contemporary theologians, especially in the analytic tradition, who would just say, okay, and just would just say that who cares i I will i'll I'll dump the whole thing because they're wrong
1: yeah that that impulse has no like um I, i just do not have that in me at all in any way i find i have never found novelty particularly like last hundred years novelty uh to be especially um except for like in like scientific discoveries, we might say, or something like that, like very scientific sorts of things. Uh, I, novelty in theology and even in philosophy to a large degree. Um, yeah, it, I just have, it just, it, it does nothing for me. We've, I feel like I'm a completely different person than that, than that sort of impulse. Yeah. Of like, I, I don't care if 1900 years of Christian history has said one thing, right? Like, uh, okay, but you know, um, I'm just not going to spend a lot of my like brain power dealing with that. Like, that's just not. So that's why I don't. That's why I read early modern folk. Um, yeah. So
2: I, I, I don't. Um, I would want to like not accept the characterization of like dunking on analytic philosophy for the chief reason that one of my uh, <laughs> advisor, my supervisors of the dissertation is analytic philosopher. I mean, I think these are um you might think of these as like tradition bounded sets of inquiry analytic philosophy and theology has its own its virtues and vices its yeah. clarity its rigor and and all that sort of stuff and then like scholastic theology has is a different kind of tradition that's not to say that these two traditions can't talk to one another but to echo what i think mike was recommending in his criticisms is like let's before we start throwing the bath water out, let's make sure there's not any conceptual babies in it. Um, and let's, I think the thing I was saying about uh, divine um, timelessness and simplicity is uh, s- somewhat similar, going the opposite direction, just so- sounding a cautionary tale that like, if if you want to use divine simplicity as a reductio on the entire tradition, okay, but you also might be giving up lots of really interesting ideas that aren't directly and immediately impacted by divine simplicity. Now, you could make make everything <laughs> related to divine simplicity in some respects, but I still think um, it would be really imprudent to 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 throw all of it out and to say like, um, I mean, Plantinga did not share any of the intuitions that uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards had in his in the section of freedom will that he. Uh, um, Interacted with, but he uh, was able to generate a very interesting journal article out of uh, out of his opposition to Edward. So even where you disagree, and there's plenty of room for disagreement all over the early modern place, um, you can still find interesting people to uh, debate and uh, to make one's analytic intuitions even sharper and clearer. Yeah. Um, so. That's good. Yeah.
0: No, I appreciate it. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. So clearly we've got all sorts of gold here in the episode. So what I'll remind you is, Michael, are you teaching this course at any point relatively soon in the future again at Davenant? You're on mute.
1: Yeah. I'm not. I'm um, t- I'm trying to think. My next course is going to be taught with Time and Klein, and it's going to be on Richard Baxter's uh, political philosophy and political theology. So, uh, you know, uh, we haven't titled it just quite yet, but something like Richard Baxter's uh, vision of Christian nationalism. So, um, which is uh, sure to uh, um, please everyone. And, um, anyways, we're gonna read we're gonna read Baxter's treatise on uh, uh, on the on a, like Christian commonwealth and uh, some other things. Bye Baxter. That's the next thing. I have a class on the Westminster Confession of Faith that I think I'm scheduled to teach coming up soon uh, for the Davin Institute, but you can just like keep up with the Davin Institute. Thanks.
0: Awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys doing this. This is a lot of fun. I know everybody's been listening, has definitely surely enjoyed it. So uh, follow their work. Uh, Follow Lane as he continues to flourish and finish his PhD program. Uh, Clearly he's... Way smarter than I've ever been at any point in my PhD program. So you know you need to pay attention to what he's doing. Don't lie on
2: a podcast, Jordan.
0: (laughs) Never. So this has been awesome. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.